Laissons la sangha tout entière respirer comme un seul corps, chanter comme un seul corps, écouter comme un seul corps, et transcender les frontières d'un soi illusoire, nous libérant ainsi du complexe de supériorité, d'infériorité et d'égalité.
เลยสร้างฟังฟรังโกฟอนส่งไว้ไอวิเตเดกันเนี่ยแปลเดทัย The children are invited to come and sit close to Tay. Does anyone have a camera to take a picture? <laughs> I know that I'm in Plum Village. Breathing out, I know I'm in Plum Village. Breathing in, I smile. To everyone. In Plum Village, smiling. Plum Village, I smile. Sunshine, breathing in, breathing out. I smile to the sun. Sunshine, smile. Good morning, dear friends. Today is July 15. Is that right? Today is 
We are in the lower hamlet in the assembly of stars meditation hall. What's a Buddha? Who is the Buddha? Have you ever met a Buddha? Not yet. A Buddha is a human being like us, like you and me. It's an ordinary person. A Buddha is a person who has a lot of love and understanding. When we have a lot of love inside us, when we have a lot of understanding, we don't suffer much, very little. We have more happiness. Does the Buddha suffer? Yes. The Buddha does suffer too. But his way of suffering is different. And the Buddha is someone who knows how to make use of suffering to make happiness. It's like the way we use mud to make lotus flowers. Because if there is no mud, there cannot be any lotus. Without the mud, no lotus. There are lotus flowers here. In Lower Hamlet, there are also lotus flowers in New Hamlet. And we know how to cultivate lotus flowers with that mud. And of course with the sun and the rain and other things. But the mud is indispensable. So we know very well. No mud, no lotus. The same is true with happiness. Happiness is like a lotus flower. We should use certain things to be able to produce happiness. Suffering is one of the essential ingredients. If we know how to make use of suffering, of pain. We can cultivate happiness. And the Buddha is someone who knows very well how to make use of suffering to make happiness. He practiced, he learned the methods of doing that. And he transmitted these methods to us. So if you're a friend of the Buddha, you want to learn how to make use of suffering to produce happiness. Like here in Plum Village, we use the mud to make lotuses, right? Is that clear? 
So there's a very deep connection between suffering and happiness. And we come to Plum Village to learn how to use that suffering. There is suffering in us. There's anger, jealousy, fear, despair, things like that. That's the mud. But we need the mud to be able to cultivate the lotus flowers. So most people out in society don't know how to make use of the suffering, that kind of mud to produce happiness. So we come to Plum Village to learn how to make use of suffering. There are gardeners who grow vegetables, fruits, organically. It means in the garden there's garbage, there's waste produced from the garden. Gardens always have Waste, An organic gardener is someone who does not throw away garbage. He doesn't throw the garbage out the window. He needs the garbage to make compost. And the organic gardener knows how to use the garbage. the waste to make compost. And with that compost, the gardener will be able to nourish the flowers and the vegetables. So, when we look deeply into a tomato or a cucumber, Imagine there's a tomato in my hand. Visualize a tomato or a cucumber. When I look deeply into a cucumber or a tomato, I can see the compost that was made from the garbage. Organic gardeners know how to use garbage for making compost. So when we look into happiness, we see the suffering inside. Suffering is used to produce happiness. This is a very deep teaching of the Buddha. There's a very close relationship, a close connection between suffering and happiness. Last week, the children learned a lot. First of all, we learned how to invite the bell to sound. I hope that this week, the children will have another chance to learn how to invite the bell to sound and how to breathe with the sound of the bell. This is a practice that can bring a lot of calm and peace 
And I hope Fabulou and the other monks and monks will help you to learn how to invite a bell to sound and breathe in such a way that you have peace, joy, and happiness inside. But if I repeat the same teaching here, then I won't have a chance to teach you anything new. So I rely on the monks and nuns and the children's staff who know very well how to invite the bell to sound in a way that we can have peace and joy. Every time anger comes up, every time somebody is about to punch, to attack that there is suffering, right? A person who has anger is someone who suffers. The person who has violence inside is someone who suffers. Suffering is there. What do we do not to suffer? What should we do to use that violence, that anger, in order to produce lotus flowers of peace? And love. We need to learn these things. The first thing we can learn is that every time anger starts to come up, we should breathe. We should breathe. Mindfully. It's very effective. When anger comes up, the first thing that you have to do is to forget everything except the breath. Breathing in, I breathe in, I see the air entering my body, helping me to calm myself. Breathing out, I smile. If you can do that three times, your anger will start to go down. Very effective. And it works for grown-ups too. And it's easy. It's doable. In school or at home in the family, whenever you notice anger starting to come up, you are a practitioner of meditation. You, in a, you react in a way that's different from others. You don't speak. You don't do anything if anger is up in you. If you say something when you're angry, it's not good for you or for others. Doing something when you're angry is not good for you or for others. It will create suffering. And we don't want more suffering. 
So we should sign a contract with the Buddha, with the the Sangha community. Every time anger comes up in me, I will breathe deeply to calm myself. And I will do it three times. That's the best thing I can do to prevent the anger from exploding, making me suffer and making other people suffer. Do you think you can do it? And when you go back to school, you can talk to your friends about this. In Plum Village, this is what we learn. Every time anger or violence starts to rise up, we can breathe in and breathe out and bring our attention only to that in-breath and out-breath. Three times like that, and anger cannot push me to do anything. So this is like friendship, this is kindness. In every one of us there is a seed of kindness a seed of freshness, a seed of compassion, a seed of love. And when we breathe in this way, we water the good seeds. The seed of kindness, when that is watered, the anger will disappear. Anger cannot coexist with kindness. It's like a shadow and light. Darkness and light. When the light is on, the darkness goes away. When kindness, when compassion are there, anger disappears. So we have a seed of anger in us, but we also have a seed of love, of wisdom. So you who practice meditation, you want to water the seed of kindness, of love in you every day so that those seeds can become big and strong. And whenever you need some kindness, some love, one in-breath will be enough to help those seeds to sprout and manifest as the energy of wisdom, the energy of compassion, once they manifest, the anger will disappear right away, right? So there are good seeds in us, and there are good seeds in the other person. The other person may be overtaken with anger and violence, but that person still does have good seeds. If you are a good practitioner, you can help to water the seed of kindness in the other person. Dear friend, right now, you are angry, but I know that you also have goodness and wisdom in you. I really appreciate that seed of kindness and goodness in you. If you can say something like that, the other person's anger will go down. We call that loving speech. Anytime you see a person 
Completely overcome with anger and violence, you can do like that. You speak with compassion. That person is suffering. I don't want to punish a person who is suffering. I want to help him. I want to help her. I want to look at that boy, that girl, with the eyes of compassion and say, you're angry, you're suffering, I don't want you to suffer. You also have a seed of compassion, of kindness, of love in you. And I want you to be happy. If you can speak like that, you are protected by your compassion. The other person's anger will not light off, set off the anger in you. You are protected. You have a seed of anger, but that person's anger cannot ignite the seed of anger in you because you know how to breathe. You know how to protect yourself. And you are safe. So the practice of breathing allows us to see there is a seed of anger and of violence in that person, but there's also a seed of kindness, of goodness in him. And meditation helps us with that understanding and kindness. I have a corn plant over here. Can you help me? I remember last year in Italy, we gave the children an assignment during the retreat. I distributed to the children. Each child got a seed of corn. It was an assignment for them to do homework. And the grown-ups wanted to get one too. Everybody had to take their seed of corn back home, look for a little pot and plant that seed in, in the pot with some earth, some soil. We would breathe and water that seed once a day. So I gave one to each child in Italy. Breathe and smile as we water the seed. After one or two weeks, the seed will sprout and come up, and the seed will turn into a corn plant with two, three, or four leaves. So we can come and talk to the corn plant and we can ask the corn plant a question. 
The question is this. My dear corn plant, do you remember the time when you were a tiny little seed? We have to ask the corn plant that question. My dear little corn plant, do you remember the time when you were a tiny little seed? And after having asked the question, you bend your ear to listen to the answer. Because a corn plant has its own way of expressing itself. Maybe it doesn't speak English. German or French, but it has its way of speaking. And we can listen, and the corn plant will say something like this. Me? A seed? A tiny little seed? I don't believe it. Because the plant can't believe that it was ever a little seed. So you want to convince the plant. You have to say, you know, plant, I know, because I planted the seed, the seed that I gave me. I brought that seed back, planted it. I planted that seed in this pot, and I breathed, and I watered it every day. And you came out of that seed. I see this very clearly. You began as a seed. And if you're talented, maybe the plant will believe you. It's difficult to believe that you are just a little seed. But maybe after some meditation, the plant can accept. So we don't see the seed anymore. Where's the seed? Is the seed dead? If the seed is dead, then there couldn't be a plant. So if the seed... We know the seed doesn't die. The seed has become a plant. Do you think the seed is one thing and the plant is a separate thing, a different thing? The seed is not the plant. The plant is not the seed. That's, that's formal logic. But this logic has some flaws. The seed is not the plant, the plant is not the seed. That is not absolutely true, because the seed can become the plant, and the plant is in the seed. 
So now, hold a seed in your hand. My attendant is going to give us some seeds. They, uh, this is a, an ear of corn. Can you help me take a seed off of the ear of corn? Thank you. So here's a seed of corn. Very small. I put it in my left hand for meditation. At the seed, I know it's only a seed. Right? It's just a seed. It's nothing else. But if I look deeply, if I have enough time to look with mindfulness, with concentration, I can see a corn plant in this seed. The corn plant already exists in this seed. Can you see the corn plant? It takes time for the corn plant to come out of the seed. But the corn plant is already in the seed. That's meditation. Meditating means having the time When we look in meditation, we can see things that other people can't see. And you have come to Plum Village to learn meditation. You learn to look, and you look deeply, and you can see things that others are not able to see. You see that in this tiny little seed there is already a plant. If there are favorable conditions like water, light, Warmth, that plant will emerge from the seed. And the seed doesn't die, but it becomes the plant. When we look at the plant, we don't see the seed anymore, but that doesn't mean that the seed has died. No. The seed is not dead. When we look at the corn plant as a practitioner of meditation, we can still see the seed in it. This is a method of meditation called signlessness. We don't see the sign of the seed anymore, but the seed is there in the plant. If you look at the plant as a, if you, as a meditation practitioner, look at that plant, you can see the seed, not in the form of seed, but in another form. And you can see that the corn plant is the continuation of the corn seed. Can I have my cup of tea?
When we look deeply into the tea, look. We're going to meditate together right now. When we look deeply into the tea, we see that in the tea there is a cloud. Yesterday, this tea was a cloud in the sky. Now there's a cloud in the glass. The cloud became tea. So when we look into the tea, we can see a cloud even if there's no sign of the cloud. But the cloud is right there. There is a cloud in your tea. That's the truth. And I write calligraphy about that. Smile to the cloud in your tea. The next time you drink your soy milk, your tea, you can breathe and concentrate on that tea, on your soy milk, and you can see the cloud floating in your tea in your milk. Tea is not cloud. Cloud is not tea. But the tea can be a continuation of the cloud. So the plant is a continuation of the seed. So you can talk to your corn plant. My dear corn plant, when, when I look closely at you, I still see the seed that I planted a couple of weeks ago, and the plant may accept if he hears you. are also a plant, like a plant. You also started with a tiny little seed, and your dad planted that little seed and your mom. Do you believe that you were just a little seed? I also began as a tiny little seed in the body of my mom. I spent nine months in my mom's belly and you also stayed for nine months in your mom's belly. In China and in Vietnam, they call the womb not the uterus, but the palace of the child, the child's palace. There's a palace for the child in the mother's belly. And all of us have spent at least nine months in that palace of the child. It was a wonderful time. Very comfortable. The temperature was perfect. We've never suffered from cold or heat. The temperature was set perfectly. And your mom breathed for you. You were so tiny. 
a seed you began as a seed and that seed that was you was much smaller than this corn seed. And you became an embryo and you were living in a kind of liquid fluid. It was so comfortable. It's the best cushion. And you didn't have to do anything because your mom did everything for you. She breathed for you and the oxygen came in through a cord called the umbilical cord. It starts from your belly and it's attached to your mother. And every time your mom breathes, the oxygen comes into her lungs and then it ends up going through the umbilical cord into your body. In the blood. And your mom ate for you. Your mom drank for you. She was happy because she knew you were there in her. I know a young mom who sang, who chanted the Lotus Sutra every day for the baby inside her body. It's a very beautiful sutra. There's a lot of love, understanding, wisdom, and beauty in the Lotus Sutra. And that young mother wanted to nourish her little baby with the beauty, the kindness, and the light of the Lotus Sutra. She chanted the Lotus Sutra every day. And your mom nourished you not just with food and drink, but also with music. She tried to find music that you would like, soft enough. She didn't drink alcohol, she didn't smoke, because she knows that drinking alcohol or smoking is not good for you. She expressed her love for you in her way of eating, working, walking, and your dad too. He took good care of your mom. He said very nice things to her because your dad knew very well that if he said something mean to your mom, the baby would suffer. So your dad also practiced loving speech with your mom during that period. 
that you stayed in your mom's belly. And at the time you were born, you had to come out of your mom's body. And what they do at that time is to cut the cord to separate the child from the mother. This is a very difficult moment. Why? Because until that time, your mom breathed for you. Now you have to breathe on your own. You have to take your first breath. And it's very difficult and it's actually a dangerous moment because in your lungs there's fluid. And if you can't expel that liquid, then you will not be able to breathe in and get the oxygen you need to live. Sometimes it's difficult and that's why you feel afraid. It helps to get the liquid out from your lungs. It helped you to get your first inhalation to get oxygen you had to breathe on your own. And most of us succeeded in doing that. Now, you've come to Plum Village and you're learning to breathe all over again, but now in mindfulness. If you know how to breathe mindfully, that's very good. You can take care of your anger or despair because the practice can calm your body and your mind. The practice can transform anger into something more pleasant like compassion. So organic gardeners know how to transform garbage into flowers. You practitioners, you can transform anger into compassion. We can continue with this outside. The children can go out with the young monks and nuns to continue their practice. So, Tai will see you tomorrow, children. Actually, he'll see you at the walking meditation. Please, children, bow to the Sangha before you go out. Did you get it from? Maybe you should give it back to your mom. Oh, she got it from this place? From here? From the hall? Or from the... Maybe you should give them to your mom. She'll know where to put them back. Thank you.
Chers amis, euh, dans la science classique, représentée par Newton, les unes hors des autres. Are all of each other. La graine n'est pas la plante. The seed is not the plant. La graine est hors. The seed is outside the plant. The plant is outside the seed. In modern science, quantum physics, we begin to see things differently. Things are no longer outside of each other, but actually in each other. In Buddhism, we train ourselves to look in this way. We can look, looking into the seed of corn, we can see the corn plant. Looking into the child, we see the dad. The dad is not exactly outside of the child. The dad is in the child. 
The bed exists in every cell of the child and the mom as well. Not only the dad and the mom, but the grandfather, grandmother, all the ancestors are also in the child. So the child carries her father, her mother, her ancestors in her, in him. There is no separate self. The me is made of non-me elements. We are all made of non-us elements. When we look at ourselves, we see our ancestors, including mineral ancestors, vegetal ancestors, animal ancestors, and human ancestors. It is a stream. We are not just a thing. We are a stream. Looking into ourselves, we can see the whole line, lineage of beings, animate and inanimate at the same time. When we look into a flower, we see that the flower is made of non-flower elements like cloud, light, water. If we remove those elements, then the flower will disappear. In Buddhism, we know that the flower cannot exist by itself. It has to coexist. It cannot be by itself, it has to inter-be with the entire cosmos. So just being is not possible, inter-being is what is possible. In Buddhism, this is said in a very simple way. This is because that is this is a sentence the Buddha pronounced. This is because that is. <coughs> this is interbeing. You cannot be by yourself. You have to interbe with us and with the light, with the plants, with oxygen, with water, with other species. <coughs> The Sanskrit word for this is sahabu. Co-being. Co-being. Inter-being. Suppose we talked yesterday about the left and the right. On the marker. If the left is there, that means the right 
is there at the same time. The left cannot exist by itself. It has to coexist with the right. The above and the below. If there's no above, there's no below. These two pairs are not enemies. Each has to lean on the other in order to be. So that's why we have the word interbe. A child cannot be by herself. The child has to interbe with the whole cosmos. If there's no sun, if there's no cloud, there's no flower. This is a way of looking at things. If we look at things in this way, discrimination, hatred, anger can be transformed. It's very important. This is called right view, insight. Modern science is trying to discover this, the nature of interbeing. Human beings, for example, we are not only children of the earth, we are also children of the stars. Because in the earth there are stars. When we look at a seed of corn, we see the corn plant. We see the mother plant and the daughter plant. Looking at the planet Earth, we can see the sun, we can see the stars. We know that there is a very deep connection between the planet Earth and the stars. And it continues. And we represent not only planet Earth, but we also represent stars. We are made of stars. Buddhism began with the Four Noble Truths. We think the Four Noble Truths speak only of suffering, but that's not true, because in suffering there are many things that come together for something to become reality. Just like in the flower, there are non-flower elements that have come together to produce the flower. So suffering is made of non-suffering elements, like hatred, anger. A love is born between you and another person. Love is something beautiful and precious. But if you do not know how to nourish that love, 
To give that life food, it will die and become something else like anger and hatred. The Buddha said nothing can survive without food. Your love also has to be nourished. If you if you deprive your love of food, it will die and become something else like anger and hatred and despair. So, love can become hatred, despair and anger. And if we are a practitioner, like an organic gardener, we'll be able to transform the hatred and anger back into love that is possible. Because love and hatred are both of an organic nature. Love can become hatred. Hatred can also come back to being love. So we should not despair. With the practice, we can use suffering to reproduce happiness. So the four truths are not only about pain. So the first truth is called dukkha. That is translated as ill-being, suffering, ill-being. Buddhism starts out with recognizing the presence of ill-being as a reality, a truth. There is ill-being. We have to accept the fact that ill-being is there, suffering is there. We should not try to run away from the truth. There is suffering in me, there is suffering in you, there is suffering in the world, so we have to affirm the truth. The second noble truth is the causes the roots the origins of the ill-being
well-being. Dalam Buddhisme, datang sentau umpak adalah sesuatu votre Et la dépression refuse à s'en aller. Pourquoi? C'est parce que vous continuez à nourrir, à alimenter cette dépression. dépression. Votre manière de consommer chaque jour. Votre manière de faire entrer dans votre corps et votre esprit des éléments toxiques. Vous ne pratiquez pas bien you uh, are not le practicing well à la pleine conscience. Vous ne pratiquez pas uh, la consommation à la pleine conscience. Mindful consumption. Vous consommez non seulement par uh, la bouche, We consume not only mais through vous consommez our mouth. avec vos yeux, you vos oreilles, consume through your eyes, your ears, your nose, your body, and most of all your mind. Vous avez fait entrer beaucoup you have brought in many harmful, toxic elements into yourself, and that has brought suffering, depression, and it continues. So the second truth is looking deeply into ill-being to discover the roots, the food, Et And we need to identify la nourriture dont the vous avez servi pour nourrir that you have used to nourish your ill-being, to feed your suffering. There is suffering. And if the suffering refuses to go, it's because you keep feeding it. That's the teaching of the Buddha. Et après cela, le Buddha a dit, After that, the Buddha said, it is possible de transformer la souffrance, to de transform la... suffering and ill-being. It is possible uh, de faire cesser le mal to cease ill-being, uh, to cease depression. C'est une confirmation. That is a confirmation. C'est la troisième vérité, and la cessation the third noble truth, the cessation of ill-being. La guérison. Healing. Transformation. The cessation of well-being means the beginning of well-being. 
C'est la même chose. It's the same thing. S'il n'y a pas de souffrance, il y a quelque chose d'autre. C'est le bonheur. La cessation de l'existence. Suffering means the existence, the beginning of happiness. The transformation of being means the existing of well, the existence of well-being. So the third truth is well-being. Well-being is possible. So the four truths are not only about suffering, but also about happiness. Happiness is something possible. Happiness can be there. That's a confirmation that happiness is possible right in the present moment. Like the left and the right, these must coexist. Suffering and happiness have to coexist. There is a very deep connection between the two, the lotus and the mud. No mud, no lotus. Without suffering, there is no happiness. The Buddha is someone who can who knows how to use suffering to be able to produce happiness. That is exactly the intention that the four truths are teaching us. So, ill-being is there, there is a way of living that helps ill-being to continue. But happiness can be there too. And there has to be a way of living to bring about the cessation of ill-being, which is the presence of well-being. The path. The path leading to well-being. The path leading to the cessation of ill-being. To the cessation of ill-being. Or in other words, the path leading to well-being, it's the same thing. The Buddha said many times that if darkness is not there, something else has to be there, that's light. If darkness is absent, there is light. When ignorance 
Light is born. Light and darkness cannot exist separately. These two things inter are. They manifest at the same time, just like the left and the right, the above and the below. We cannot say that the right should be there first for the left to manifest. They have to manifest simultaneously in the same instant. Good and bad, suffering and happiness, ill-being and well-being, these are not separate entities from each other. One has to lean, base itself on the other to manifest, and the other has to lean on the one to manifest. That is the teaching of interbeing. There are four truths. But according to the spirit of interbeing, these four truths are not separate from each other either. That is the correct way to study the four noble truths. When you look into one truth, you will see the other three truths. If you have not seen the other three truths in the first truth, then you have not really seen the first truth. When you have not seen the plant of corn in the corn seed, then you haven't really seen the corn seed. That is Buddhist methodology. One truth contains all truths. The one contains the all. So when you look deeply into ill-being, you see not just the causes, the roots of that ill-being, but you also see the possibility of well-being. You see that well-being is there in the ill-being. Just like the organic gardener already sees the vegetables and flowers, in the compost, in the garbage. That's why he doesn't throw the garbage away. He keeps that garbage. So suffering has a role to play. And as a practitioner, we should know how to make use of suffering. And we learned already about this yesterday when we get in touch with suffering. We look deeply into the suffering. Understanding of the suffering will be born. We see our mom, our dad, and our ancestors. And when we see into the roots of our suffering, we suffer less right of way. 
right away. When we see suffering in the other person, we understand their suffering, and very naturally, compassion arises. We no longer wish to blame, punish. We want to do something to help the other person to suffer less. So understanding of suffering will generate compassion. And compassion helps you to suffer less right away. And compassion, like understanding, is the basis of happiness. A person who has no compassion and understanding is not a happy person. Even if that person has a lot of power, a lot of money and fame, that person is not a happy person if they don't have understanding and love inside. But how can we get understanding and love? We need suffering. To make the lotus, we have to have the mud. We get in touch with the suffering. We look deeply to be able to understand deeply the nature of the suffering. That gives you understanding. And understanding manifests at the same time with compassion and love. So happiness is connected to suffering. So when we look into the first truth, ill-being, deeply, what do we see? We see the nature, the roots of the suffering of ill-being. We also see that it is possible to cease that ill-being, to establish well-being. And we also see the way that leads to the cessation of well-being. It means the way to well-being. So when we look into one truth, we have to see all the other truths at the same time. That is Buddhist methodology on interbeing, seeing things in the light of interbeing. To help us, the Buddha sought to describe in detail the path they can bring back well-being. That path is called the Noble Eightfold Path. Noble Eightfold Path. The Noble Eightfold Path recommended by the Buddha begins with right view. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> 
Right view is one of the eight elements of the path. Right view is the fruit of our meditation. Meditating means having the time to listen, to look deeply with mindfulness and with concentration and with a good concentration we will be able to make a breakthrough into reality and we can get right view. In Buddhism we know what right view is. One time a monk came to the Buddha he asked this question, Dear Buddha, you have spoken many times about right view. What is right view exactly? What is right view exactly? And the Buddha said, Right view is the view that is free of notions, notions of being and non-being. Most people in the world are caught in either the notion of being or in the notion of non-being. But reality, the ultimate reality, transcends both the notion of being and the notion of non-being. In Buddhism, in Buddhism, being and non-being are nothing but ideas. They are just notions. The ultimate reality is free of these notions. We cannot use the notions of being or non-being to describe reality. Because other in our head, we think to be born means from the world of non-existence, of non-being, we pass into being. From no one, we become someone. From nothing at all, we become something. We have come 
the domain from the realm the, the non of non-being into being. <coughs> Supposons que cette Let's suppose this line represents time et que ce point représente la and this point represents birth de quelqu'un of someone, la du Bouddha, la the birth of the Buddha, the birth of Jesus Christ, your own birth. What is the birth? In our usual way of thinking, to be born is to pass from the realm of non-being into the realm of being. Because before I was born, I didn't exist. I began to exist only after point N. So the segment before N is non-being. And the segment beginning from N and going to the right is being. And then we go up until our death. That's point M. M is death. When we die, we go from being into non-being, right? That's our way of thinking, usually. This is how most people in the world think. People of the world, the Buddha said, people of the world are caught in the notion of being and the notion of non-being. That's why they cannot see the truth. So we have a notion of birth and a notion of death, and these notions of birth and death give rise to the notions of being and non-being. But according to Buddhism, these are just notions. Birth, death, being and non-being, these are nothing but notions, truth transcends all notions. When we look at a cloud in the sky, we may think of the birth of the cloud. But did that cloud come from nothing into being? Let's imagine we are scientists. We may be able to see what meditation practitioners can see. A cloud cannot come from nothing. It's impossible for something to come from nothing. So before being a cloud, the cloud must have been something else. Water in the ocean, heat from the sun, etc. So that moment that is called birth is not a true beginning. And the cloud has not gone from 
à l'être. Nothingness into being. We cannot say that that cloud did not exist before it manifested in the form of a cloud. Before that, the cloud was something. So its nature is the nature of no birth, unborn. Things are never born. There is no just beginning. In Buddhism, we don't speak about creation. We don't accept this idea of nothingness, of not being and being. If you accept the notion of being, you have to accept at the same time the notion of non-being. Many philosophers talk about being. They ignore the fact the notion of being has to be born at the same time with the notion of non-being, of nothingness. There are theologians who speak of God in terms of the ground of being, the ground of being. God is the ground of being. But according to Buddhism, that's impossible. If God is the ground of being, then who will be the ground of non-being? God, the Absolute, has to transcend notions of both being and non-being. We cannot describe God in terms of being and non-being. We cannot even describe a cloud in terms of being and non-being because a cloud can never die. It's never Born and it never dies. Dying means from something we become nothing at all. From someone we become nobody. It's impossible to pass from being to non-being. And it's impossible to pass from non-being into being. A cloud may very well become rain, snow, hail, but a cloud cannot die, become nothing. Its nature is the nature of no death. The true nature of a cloud is the nature of no birth and no death, unborn and undying. There is no creation, there is no birth, there is no beginning. There is no end. These are just ideas, notions. That's right view. In modern science, we can already confirm this. The first law of thermodynamics is exactly this. You cannot create matter and you cannot destroy matter. That's the conservation of matter, the law of the conservation of energy. We cannot 
create energy and we cannot destroy energy. We can only transfer matter may transform into energy, energy may transform into matter. There is no true birth, there is no true death. So, this is a very interesting thing. The scientist Lavoisier said, nothing is created and nothing is lost. He meditated in his own way. He looked long enough and he found the same thing. There is no birth, there is no death, there is no creation, there is no birth. Scientists can confirm this. But if there is no birth and no death, then the notions of being and non-being also are no longer valid. That's why the Buddha said, insight Right view is the view that transcends the ideas of being and non-being. On the surface we may see being and non-being, birth and death, but if we look more deeply, we will see there is no beginning or end. From a phenomenal point of view, we may see the beginning, the end, the being and non-being, but from the noumenal point of view, these ideas must be removed. Let's suppose we're looking at a wave. A wave has a beginning, an end, a rise and a fall. A wave may be compared to other waves. More beautiful, less beautiful. More powerful, less powerful. We can use adjectives to describe the wave. But with these kind of notions, the wave may suffer a lot, beginning and ending, being and not being. The wave may say, I'm here now, but at one point I'm going to become non-being, maybe in a few seconds. And then the wave gets the fear of nothingness, the fear of non-being, and anxiety in the human person has a lot to do with notions of being and non-being, anxiety. So non-being and being are only notions, and if you can touch that truth of no birth and no death, no being and no non-being, then you are free. And when you touch that truth, you touch nirvana. 
Nirvana is the absence of all these notions, the extinction, the blowing out of all these notions, including being and non-being. If you have an experience of this nature of Nirvana, if you touch the nature of no birth and no death, of no being and no non-being, you are free of fear of discrimination. So right view is a view that is free of all discrimination. Discrimination is the cause of so much pain. Discrimination. Discrimination gives rise to fear, to jealousy. The complexes, whether of superiority, inferiority, or equality, discrimination. So the path that leads to the cessation of suffering contains right view. With right view, there is no more discrimination. There is no more duality, dualism. No more fear and hatred. And then happiness is possible. Our world suffers so much because of discrimination between life and death, being and non-being. Discrimination on the basis of race, of religion. So when we look deeply into things like a cloud, we see, we can touch the true nature, the true nature of reality, which is the nature of no birth and no death. And we can remove from our mind these notions of non-being and of being. That's why when we produce a thought, that thought will be right thinking. What is right thinking? Right thinking is thinking devoid of discrimination. Thinking that is free of the notions of being and non-being. A thought that is in accord with right view. Right thinking is characterized by non-discrimination, understanding and compassion. If you 
managed to produce right thinking, that thinking will begin to heal you, nourish you, and also nourish and heal the world. Because there's no discrimination, there is only understanding, compassion. A good practitioner should be able to produce this kind of thinking every day. Thoughts that are free of discrimination, that are permeated with understanding, because you have already seen the interbeing nature. We cannot be by ourselves alone. We can only interbe with each other. And then there can be cooperation. We will not have war. Right view is the foundation of non-discrimination, mutual cooperation and compassion. That's why in the second truth we can already identify the element of wrong view. Wrong view is view that is not right. We think the Father and the Son are two totally different entities. The Father cannot be anything but the Father, and the Son can only be Son. That's discrimination. With meditation we can see the Father in the Son. We can see the corn plant in the corn seed. That's right view. Things are not outside of each other. They are in each other. And this can also be found in the Christian Gospel. I have studied the Gospel and as a Buddhist, I found wonderful things in there. There's a sentence in John. It says, one day you will see that I am in the Father. One day you will see that I am in the Father. You are in me, and I am in you. That is the teaching on interbeing. The Father is in the Son. The Father is in the Son. The Son is in the Father. The Son is in the Holy Spirit. We enter our. That is right view. And with that view, there is no discrimination. Even between Creator and created creation, the Creator and the creation are not two completely separate things outside of each other. No. Just like the corn seed and the corn plant, the cause and the effect also, that is the insight that you can attain thanks to meditation and you touch the nature of interbeing. The teaching on interbeing also exists in the Christian Gospel. 
Donc avec uh, cette vision profonde so, après this insight called right view, the thoughts that you produce are right thoughts that carry non-discrimination, understanding and compassion. Every time you have this kind of thought being born, it can nourish and heal ourselves and nourish and heal the world. We can heal ourselves and heal the world through right thinking. We need to teach our children to write, to think, right thinking, thinking permeated by love, understanding, and non-discrimination. There is a wisdom that is called the wisdom of non-discrimination, and that wisdom is in my two hands. My right hand never discriminates against my left hand. There is no complex of superiority in my right hand and there is no complex of inferiority, com inferiority in my left hand. The two hands coexist in perfect harmony because each of my two hands possesses this wisdom of non-discrimination. And that's what makes peace possible. So a good practitioner can always produce right thinking to nourish himself and heal himself and to nourish and heal the world. And when the practitioner speaks, what the person says is right speech. Words that have no discrimination in them. Because I see that I am in you and you are in me, so your suffering is my suffering. My happiness is your happiness. We see things in this way, and that's why we speak with understanding, with love and compassion, because that foundation is already there, right view. We can speak using loving speech, and that is the fourth of the five mindfulness trainings. We listen and we speak with the mind of non-discrimination. This kind of listening and speech can restore communication and establish reconciliation. As a practitioner, we can always find something to say to help remove wrong perceptions, to 
restore communication and bring about reconciliation. And all of this happens on the foundation of right view, non-discrimination. My suffering is your suffering. Your happiness is my happiness. And then we have right action. The acts that I perform with my body physically, I do them with love, with compassion, with understanding. So I can protect, I can help, I can support, I can encourage. That is right action. When we're able to do right action filled with love and compassion and without discrimination we feel well in our body and in our mind. And in our mind. It nourishes us and it heals us. In Buddhism we have the word karma. That word means action. Action in terms of thoughts, in terms of speech, and in terms of physical acts. Thinking is already one kind of action. If you think according to right view, you will be able to heal the world. Without discrimination. So, thinking is already acting. Speaking is already acting. We speak, and with those words, we produce many good things like understanding, trust, love, hope. With right action, physical action, we can bring relief to ourselves and to the world. We can bring about happiness. So, thoughts, speech, and mind are three forms of karma action. Every thought that we produce Every word we produce, every physical act we do, never dies. Nothing dies. Those actions continue always. That is your continuation. You are not only this physical body. You think you're just this physical body. That is not right view. You are much more than this body. 
you are your karma. You are your actions. You are not only in here, in this direction, you are also out there. What I think, what I say, what I do, those are my continuation and they will bring a retribution. And whether those consequences, that retribution is beautiful or not, it depends entirely on the quality of the actions. The cloud will not die, it will become something like snow or rain. But if the cloud has a lot of acid, then it will produce acid rain. But if the cloud is pure, the water produced in that rain will be pure water. So there is a value, quality to your thinking, your speech, and your physical actions. Your thinking may produce happiness or pain. That's your continuation. After the disintegration of this body, you continue because it's impossible to really die. You are just like a cloud, you can never die. You always continue. And if you know how to live, you will be able to continue in beauty and how with your thinking, your speech, and your actions. What you have produced in terms of thinking, speech, and physical acts are still out there. You're not just in here, everything is all around you. That's why we want to take care of the present moment and only produce Right thinking, thoughts of non-discrimination, of understanding and love. And then we will continue beautifully when we do that. The French contemporary philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre said, man is the sum of his acts. Very close to Buddhism. We are our karma. We are our thoughts, our words, and our acts. We can define humans based on these actions. So, right action based on right view will bring a good, positive retribution. Karma as cause, karma as retribution. A cloud will become something else, like snow, like hail, and we always continue in different forms Our nature is the nature of no death and no birth. We always continue. Alors, 
So Jean-Paul Sartre said, man is the sum of his acts. That's true. And the actions we have done are still there to continue us. That is the Buddhist view on continuation. What happens when I die? It's very clear. When I die, there is no death. Properly said, there is the dissolution of this physical body, but I continue in my karma. It means with what I have produced in terms of thoughts, words, and acts. And that's why the path leading to happiness is this eightfold path starting with right view, right thinking, and so on. And we will continue with the eightfold path tomorrow. Now it's time for walking meditation. Please keep your earphones plugged in for the announcements.